It's our pleasure this morning to welcome back to our pulpit here at Colonial, John Glass. John has been for the last 25 years a missionary, a pastor, a church planter. Uh, You're seeing a picture right now of the uh, first church here that uh, he is, not the first church, but he has pastored the church here. It's the Evangelical International Church of Geneva. He's pastored this church for the last five years. This is their first year anniversary service. Uh, John's history, though, in Europe, he'll tell you a little bit about that here shortly. But in his 25 years in pastoring and church planting, he spent the first 10 years of his ministry in Europe pastoring a church in Paris. His very first convert is today the pastor. Now, He's helped, once moving to Geneva, he's helped four churches start and get underway. The fourth one is the church you see here. This is their very first anniversary picture. That was roughly five years ago. This year, they're going to be five years celebrating that. And by the way, Stephen Davey will fly over in November and preach their anniversary service. Now, this church has 35 different nationalities represented in it. It is truly an international church. It is known there as the Evangelical International Church of Geneva. If you know your history, Geneva is where the UN resides, and it is just an international city, an amazing city, too, for evangelism. I just want to talk for a moment about John's impact once arriving in Geneva. John is the only chaplain to a professional hockey team in Switzerland. And there he is in the locker room there. I think he baked that cake himself uh, for the team. He's he's kind of an all-purpose pastor. But uh, he is there connecting with the team, but with the real ambition to do what you see on the right side, which is here at the Reformation Wall in Geneva. John is uh, taking a couple of the players and some of the coaching staff and their spouses to the Reformation Wall with the intent to deliver the gospel. And that's why he does that. The church itself has come together. This is a church that's really only five years old, but doing amazing things to bring the gospel to the city of Geneva. This is last December. They do something very similar to what we do with Christmas sweets every uh, December. They put on a grand concert. Well, this is a promo of the concert the day before in a Geneva mall. Look at the people there on the, up in the balcony on the second floor and third floor looking over. And here they have not only a combination of their church orchestra, but also about 100 members from Romania that come in to be part of this event. On the right side is the uh, advertisement for this year. This is this year's uh, concert. If you happen to be in Geneva on the 15th of December, you might want to attend. But it is a great, great event. By the way, in his spare time, John has written a book on Calvin and his Geneva. It's a book that will be published here, I think, in about a month. Let me introduce you to John's family. This is a vacation just a couple of weeks ago on an island in the Mediterranean. That's John on the far left, Meg, his wife, on the scooter next to him. Then John William. John William uh, recently graduated from Master's College. The young lady in the middle, Kimberly, it will graduate from Master's College here this next year. And then finally, James on the end. James is the basketball player. Uh, James is about 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, if you Google North Korea basketball. You'll see a clip done by CNN on a trip he just made about six weeks ago. They took a basketball team into North Korea. James will be heading to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School here in the fall. So a great, great family. As we welcome him, the one thing I can tell you about John is he's been a dear friend to our family for over 20 years. Help me welcome John Glass. Eh bien, bonjour. C'est vraiment un plaisir d'être ici ce matin. Et je ne vais pas continuer en français pendant tout le message, mais si vous comprenez ce que je dis, j'aimerais que vous leviez la main. Qui comprend ce que je dis? Je vois une main là-bas. Who's understanding what I'm saying? Please raise your hands real high. Thank you, I'm recruiting, I'm recruiting. Okay, Wayne, please take those names down. Hey, I just wanted you to hear what we do day in and day out in Geneva. Geneva is a wonderful city, city of 400,000 people on the uh, west end of Switzerland. It's French-speaking because it borders on France. Zurich is Swiss-German-speaking because it borders on Germany. 
and Lugano down south borders on Italy, and therefore they speak Italian. And uh, we've been there. I was actually raised there as a kid, 15 years, as Wayne just said, and it's uh, been a pleasure to be back there for the last 15 as a church planner, and uh, the Lord has been very good to us. We're really excited. We started this church that Wayne just mentioned about uh, four and a half years ago in, in November. We have our fifth anniversary, and we've invited Stephen and Marsha. They'll be coming in uh, November, and he'll be preaching and helping us kind of dream the next step of our church. And since he started this church, I think it's so cool. I get so encouraged when I come here to see that, you know, the man who God used to start this church is still here. Well, that's kind of what we're saying. You know, we started this little church. Can you help us kind of give the vision for the future? So we're really excited about that. And Wayne and Phyllis, thank you for your wonderful hospitality. They've been dear friends for many, many years. So this morning, I was asked to speak on a very particular topic, the hand of God in soul winning. The hand of God in soul winning. Now, this is a topic I love to speak on because I love soul winning, though I admit it is extremely hard for me to do soul winning. That's right. And you're going to find out today why it's hard for me. And if you're a soul winner, if you like soul winning, or maybe if you don't like soul winning, you know that it's hard. It's very, very difficult. It's scary. Well, to do this and help us understand how to be better soul winners, I would like for us to look at the story of a missionary, one of the great missionaries of the Bible that I believe typifies soul winners. He was an amazing missionary. God used him in an amazing way. He's very famous. The entire world knows about this man. He had a dramatic call. He actually heard the voice of God. Secondly, he was called to a foreign land, specifically by name. He witnessed some of the most fantastic miracles recorded in all of Scripture. In fact, through his ministry, he witnessed one of the greatest revivals in the history of the world. Yet amazingly, this same man blatantly disobeyed God. Hold your seats on this one. Do you know that this missionary actually hated the people he was sent to? He hated them. It's a pretty strong word. In fact, he even had a major anger problem. To top it all off, he was so depressed at one point that he actually tried to commit suicide, but God prevented him from committing suicide. Ladies and gentlemen, Who do you think I'm talking about? Jonah. Jonah, the great soul winner. And this is who I would like to speak on today. I know it's a very familiar story, but I really believe that Jonah is one of the best biblical examples of a soul winner because I believe that Jonah went through what most soul winners go through at one point or another in their soul winning endeavors. And I'm a missionary. I'm paid to do this. 25 years, folks. I can totally relate to Jonah. This is what I call the Jonah syndrome. And that's why I think the story is in the Bible. I think it's a great encouragement to all of us who don't always feel really, really secure about proclaiming the gospel or witnessing to people. Just a word about the historical reliability of the book. As you can imagine, the incredible miracles, especially the miracle of Jonah being swallowed by fish, for three days, has been extremely attacked by liberals who want to discredit the Bible. There's no way a fish swallowed Jonah, they say, and so they give up, you know, other solutions. For example, they say, well, no, no, Jonah just had a dream of a fish swallowing him. It never really happened. Others say, no, it was just a myth, the myth of Hercules and the sea monster. Others say, no, 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 It it was another boat. Another boat came and rescued him, but this boat had the bow shaped like a fish. This is my favorite one. Jonah did fall over a boat, boat capsized, he was sinking, but he happened to see a huge dead fish floating on the water, so he climbed on it like a lifeboat. That's their version of Jonah. I'm going, you know what, that's kind of interesting. Now, why such criticisms of Jonah? Well, because, you see, if you accept the miracle of Jonah and all that happened here, then you must accept the possibility of the existence of a personal God. And if you do that, if you accept the 
possibility of the existence of a personal God, then you are allowing for moral accountability before that God. And if you allow for that, then you must be open to consider God's solution to the fallen moral nature of man. And that solution is in his son, Jesus Christ. And suddenly, liberals can't go there at all. And so therefore, they try and simply discredit the book of Jonah. So how do you answer them? Go with me to Matthew 12. Let me show you. Matthew 12 is a great response to this. Matthew 12, verse 38. It says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Verse 39, And he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah, listen to this, Jesus says this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, what I love about this is Jesus Christ affirms the actual historical event of Jonah being swallowed by a fish for three days. And he came out alive. Now, folks, the moment you discredit the validity and historicity of Jonah is the day you have just discredited the historicity of Jesus and his credibility. Because if Jonah did not exist, and if the miracle of the fish did not happen, then Jesus was either wrong or he lied. And that's a real problem for the perfect and holy Son of God. So the only conclusion is, Jonah really happened. It's real, folks. And that's exciting. Because I think this real story of Jonah typifies soul winners. So now let's look through the story of Jonah, the hand of God in soul winning. And I'd like to draw out seven key principles of the task of soul winning. And I really hope these will encourage you like they've encouraged me this week. I mean, this week, I mean, I was, I was coming to Colonial to preach on evangelism. And I was going, John... How are you doing in the area of evangelism? And this week, God gave me courage to share Christ with two people. Very, very cool. So I hope this happens today and that you will be encouraged to be a greater soul winner for him. And what we're going to do, we're going to spend a lot of time in the beginning of Jonah. It's a very familiar story. But we are going to whip through the entire book very fast. We're not going to read all the verses. And we're going to get the whole story done here in the next little moment. So, seven principles. Number one. Soul winning starts with God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. Soul winning starts with God. I really like this, folks, because the idea of soul winning comes from God. God wants souls to be one. This is not a man-made idea. This is a God-made idea. How did the word of the Lord come to Jonah? It doesn't say. It doesn't say, but probably an audible voice like for many other prophets in the Old Testament. But this is God's idea. He wants this to happen this way. I love Mark 16, 15, which says, and he said to them, talking about Jesus, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. You see, this is God who wants this to happen this way. Matthew 28, you know it as well as I do probably. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. This is God's idea. John 15, 16 puts it like this. John, uh, Jesus says, John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So soul winning is a mandate from God. He wants the gospel to be proclaimed. He has designed salvation because men are born sinful through Adam because Adam sinned. They are cut off and alienated from a holy God. They can't even seek God, it says in Romans 2. They are dead in their sins and don't even know it in Ephesians 2. And so God came up with a plan. A plan to bring those souls back to him. And when did he have that idea? Oh, this is so cool. Ephesians 1, 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us to be adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself. See, this all happened. This idea happened before the foundation of the world. So you know, this is really encouraging to me. I was in the plane coming over here on Friday from, from Geneva. You know, nine hours is a long time to be in a plane and there's this girl next to me. So we're starting to talk about everything and I'm going, you know, oh yeah. You know, I don't want to watch a bunch of movies that got big screens now. It's kind of really cool. But I was thinking, wait, I'm going to Colonial to talk about evangelism. John, you know what? There's a girl here who needs the Lord. So I'm getting really uncomfortable thinking, oh no, you know, it's like, wow, how do you do this? I, believe me, I'm just like everyone else, okay? It's never easy. And then I thought to myself when I try to wimp out, hey, wait a minute, John, this is God's idea. This is God's idea. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. And the Lord allowed me to share the gospel with her. It's really cool. But sometimes I got to remember, hey, this is God's idea. Number two. Soul winning starts with God. Number two, soul winning is accomplished through men. Is accomplished through men. Look at this, verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now this is another revolutionary concept. Not only did God come up with a plan to win souls back to himself, but this plan calls for people like you and me to do the job. Now, hear me well. We don't actually win the soul to God, right? No, he saves the soul. He gave his son. Son died for the souls of men. God pries open hearts so that they can understand and believe in him. We know that. But it's interesting that God has called upon people, like you and me, just normal people, to proclaim that message of salvation to other people. God speaks to Jonah. And what do we know about Jonah? Well, we're in the year 760 B.C., about 3,000 years ago. 2 Kings 14.25 tells us he was a prophet in the north of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam. 2 Kings 14.25 tells us he was from the city of Gath-Hefer, which is located directly to the left of the Sea of Galilee. He was a son of Amittai, he who affirms the truth, so probably from a believing family, and his name means dove. Now, I just think this is very interesting. Listen. Could God have simply said, you know, I, I'm just going to talk to the city of Nineveh. Could, could he have just like out of the sky said, Nineveh, listen, this is God. Could he have done that in Assyrian? Well, we know he could have because at the baptism of Jesus, a voice from God is heard. So we know very well that God could have simply declared the gospel himself and bypassed Jonah, but he didn't. He wants people to do the job. Romans 10, you know these missionary verses. Verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. You know, I've always been amazed by my own testimony. I was born in Paris, raised in Geneva, Switzerland as a kid. That's why I speak French. At the age of 15, I went to college in America. Became a real partier, had long hair, ponytail, smoking hash, doing a lot of stuff I shouldn't have done. Finally, I decided to travel the world, so I'd go back to Geneva and take a backpack, and for the next six months, I'd go Switzerland, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Romania, Yugoslavia, Greece, Israel, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, all by bus. Get to India. I'm like trying to figure this all out. I'm 19 years old. God sends a Dutch missionary on the sidewalk in New Delhi, India. The guy pulls out his Bible and he says, can I show you John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He says, John, you are headed right to hell. Christ died for you. He offers you forgiveness of sins. Do you want to believe in him and trust him now to become your savior? Man, I was so scared, but I said yes. 
And right then and there on November 2nd, 1976, I bowed my head and I said, Jesus Christ, please, right now, become my Savior and totally change my life. And I'm thinking to myself, isn't it incredible that God would have appointed a Dutch man I've never seen again in my life, don't know his name, he knows nothing about me, to put him on the street in New Delhi for that day for me. You see, soul winning is accomplished through people. And God, I believe, this is one of the reasons I'm a missionary today, wants to use me like that man was used in my life. I would like to be used that way in other people's lives. That's the way it goes. So when you get nervous, you think, oh man, I don't know. This evangelism stuff's hard. Just remember, hey, it's God's idea and he wants to use you. Yeah, but I'm not good at it. doesn't matter. You know John 3.16? Can you handle that? Okay, you know how to witness. Tell him your testimony. Show him John 3.16. You've just witnessed. Number three. Oh, this is where it gets uncomfortable. Soul winning involves a radical message. A radical message. Verse 2. We're plowing through this book fast, aren't we? Look at this. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. See, this, I believe, is one of the fundamental reasons why soul winning is not popular or easy. It is so hard to tell your neighbor to tell your colleague at work, to tell your friend at school, to tell a family member. It is so hard to get to the point in witnessing where you say, you know what? Your sin is an offense to a holy God. Your sin is wicked. And you deserve the judgment of God. Oh, that's hard to say to people. So what do we know about Nineveh? Well, look, we find out, first of all, it's a great city, the capital of Assyria, about 800 miles northeast of Samaria, where Jonah was from that area. The Tigris River passed nearby. Today, it is near the city of Mosul in Iraq. Nineveh was the largest city in antiquity, about 60 miles in circumference. It had a population estimated at 600,000 people, which is 1.5% bigger than Geneva, Switzerland. And it was a three-day walk, we find out in Jonah 3-4, which probably means that the greater city, Geneva's got an inner city and then a greater city with suburbs, that greater city took three years, three days to walk. So we find out it's a great city. We find out it's also a wicked city, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 8 tells us something else. It says, but both men and beasts must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hand. So it was a great, wicked, and violent city. And Nahum tells us it was a bloody city. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Nahum says this, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging swords, flashing spears gleamings, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. The bloody city, verse 1 says, You see, Assyria was the cruelest country and the most idolatrous nation of the ancient world. Let me give you an example. There's a guy called King Ashurnasirpal II, 883 BC. He boasted about his cruelty. This is what he said. I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them with their blood. I dyed the mount red like wool. Talking about an officer he captured, he says, I flayed him, I tore off his skin from his body and spread his skin on the wall of a city. Just think about that one. That's gross. <laughs> Shalmaneser says, The heads of their warriors I cut off and pile them up against the wall of the city. Their young men and women I burned with fire. Sennacherib says this, I slit their throats like lambs. I cut their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the context of the gullets and entrails, that means their guts, run out upon the wide earth, and I cut off their hands. This is my favorite one, or the grossest one. Ashurnabhapal says this, took an enemy. I pierced his chin with my dagger. It means he took his knife and dug a hole in the guy's chin. Through his jaw, I passed a rope. 
Then he roped him. Aha. I put a dog chain upon him and made him occupy a kennel. No wonder the Bible calls Nineveh the city of blood, a city noted for cruelty, a wicked city. And God says to Jonah, Jonah, go to that people and cry against it. That's what it says. Cry against it. What does that mean? Well, listen to what God says to Isaiah in Isaiah 58.1. He says, cry aloud and do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sin. He says, tell them their sin. Cry it out. Tell them you are cruel, you are wicked, you are bloody. And God is going to judge you. Jonah 3, 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You guys have 40 days. In 40 days, God is going to let loose and destroy you. Wow. You're Jonah. Jonah, go tell him. Why? Why was he supposed to do this? Look at this. Jonah 4, verse 11. God says, and should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as animals? You know what God is saying? I love these people. I created them. Their sin is an offense, but I love them and I have compassion on them. They need me. They need to be saved from the judgment but they must recognize their sin to be able to be saved from the judgment. And so the whole message is this. You have sinned. God will judge you, but God loves you, and God wants to show you compassion. Confess your sin. Repent from your sin, and come to God by faith for forgiveness of your sin, and he will withdraw the judgment from you. See, this is exactly what John the Baptist did in Matthew 3. It's no different in the New Testament. Verse 1, now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent of your sin. Verse 12, then he declares judgment and the winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear the threshing's floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is what Paul did in Romans 1. I mean, this is amazing when you start aligning all these verses on judgment. Verse 18 of Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In 2.5 he says that you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so we are supposed to tell people, you know what? Your sin is incurring the wrath of God. But... Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, we tell people judgment is coming, but God loves you and he offers you compassion. Trust him. Trust his son. And he will wipe your sin away and spare you the judgment. Now that's really hard to say to people, your friends, your neighbors. It's scary. And I think this is one of the reasons soul winning is not popular. It's really hard. And you know what? It's hard for me too. I'm no different. We're exactly the same. Number four. Number four, now it's logical. Soul winning is counter nature. It's counter nature. Look what happens. Verse 3. You're going, there's no way we're getting through this book. Oh, yeah. You wait and see. Look at this. Verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he goes out, gets a ship, and goes. Now, this is absolutely amazing. He goes to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What is going on here? 
I think two things are going on. Number one, I believe that Jonah took off. I mean, God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. He goes, no. And he takes off and goes the other way. Okay? (laughs) Bottom line, that's exactly what happens. Why? Number one, I think he feared men. He knew all about the Caesarean cruelty. He's going, there is no way I'm going to there. I'm going to go tell the king, you're in sin. You know what he's going to do to me? He's going to make me a dog leash guy. He's going to absolutely make mince meat out of me. He knows my days are numbered here. There is no way I'm going to confront these people. He was just scared of man. He feared for his life. But I think he also does not understand the love of God. You see, Jonah knew the Assyrians and their cruelty, and he hated them. They had done much harm to his people, maybe to his own family. And when he was realized that God was going to show grace to them, there is no way he could imagine that. No way. Let me give you an, ex- an example. Suppose you're a Jewish person and you were alive during World War II. The end of the war is nearing and about six million Jews have been brutally slaughtered like cattle by Adolf Hitler. One day God speaks to you. He says, you know what? I want you to go to Berlin and I want you to go speak to Adolf Hitler because he is going to repent of all of his sins and I'm going to forgive him for all of his evil and give him the glories of eternal life. Because I love him. How do you feel? How are you feeling about that? Now, that did not happen, okay? Just want to make this clear. But could you imagine being given that job? Well, that's exactly the way he's feeling. He says, what, you, you want me to go to Assyria? And you're saying that you're going to show compassion on that cruel people? No way. And you see, what happens is that Jonah does not understand the extent of God's compassion and mercy and grace in the lives of sinners. You see, Jonah's problem, he said, does not understand the holiness of God and the horror of sin. Let me, this is interesting. Do you know that Jonah was just as much of a sinner than the Assyrians? I mean, he deserved all the wrath of God also. Because we are all sinners. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners, all people. There's not one righteous, says Ecclesiastes 7.21. James 2.19 says that one sin is enough to condemn us because one sin means that we are no longer holy. Never were holy, we're born in sin. See, in Jonah's mind, the Assyrians were worse sinners than everybody else. And we might say that Hitler was a worse sinner than everybody else. Well, he sure did a lot more harm than most people, but he was just a sinner like everyone else. So where does he go? Tarshish. Do you know why? Have you ever thought about that? Do you know where Tarshish is? Bottom left corner of Spain, as far as he could go. Why? Isaiah 66, 11 tells us. That's 66, 19. Listen to this. And I will set a sign among them, and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshesh, Rosh, Tubal, Javan, to the distant coastlands that have never, neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. In Jonah's day, those towns, including Tarshish, were considered the towns outside the realm of the presence of God. Those are the places that no one had ever been to to declare the glory of God. He knew that, so he said, hey, cool, I'm going to take a boat and go there, and once I go there, I'll be outside of the realm of God, and I'll be at peace. He takes off as far as he can. And I think to myself, you know what? How many times have I done the exact same thing? We have a big Swiss celebration on August 1st, and I was there just a few days ago. Go to my little village where I was raised, and all my friends were there that I've known for 55 years. I'm 55. And, uh, you know, having a good time, you know, kind of reminiscing and stuff. And there was a couple there I didn't know real well. They knew about me, and I knew about them. So we began to talk, and we were having fun. And he told me about his job as a teacher, and she was telling me her job about her teacher and all that. And we were having fun. And suddenly she says, and, and, and John, you know, after all these, what do you do? And I'm going, oh, no. <laughs> In Europe. I never know how to answer that question. So I, I said, okay, well, I'll answer. I said, I'm a pastor. 
And at that point, conversation over. Tension all around the table. Ooh, no. It's like, this is God, Pastor Jesus. Ah, you know, you're all like uncomfortable now. I mean, I can kill a conversation so quickly, it's not even funny. Just tell them what I do, you know? So I'm thinking, oh, no. So now they're getting all uncomfortable, and I could tell she was looking at me like, ooh, whoa, you're a Martian. I, I don't know what to do with this, you know? And I'm thinking, John, what a golden opportunity to explain a bit more what I do, and I didn't. I walked away. I did. I walked away. This happens so often, folks. I'm just like everybody else. And I'm a pro. I'm paid to do this. <laughs> it's like unbelievable, you know? Man, so hard. You know, you're having fun and you want to try and figure the way to share the gospel and everyone gets nervous. But you hate that? Well, that's the way it is. Hey, you know what? It's God's idea. God's idea. Number five. Number five. Soul winning molds the soul winner. This is so interesting. So, Jonah takes off. He's finished with God, but God is not finished with Jonah. Now, just think about this one second. This is amazing. How many chapters in the book of Jonah? Four. How many verses on the repentance of Nineveh? Six verses. Chapter 3, verse 5 through 10. All the rest of the book is on Jonah. Is on God recuperating Jonah from his disobedience. This absolutely is amazing to me because then I, re- I realize that soul winning is not just about winning souls. I mean, that is God's ultimate purpose, of course. But you know what? God uses soul winning to mold the soul winner. You see, what God wants is a willing and happy soul winner. That's what he really wants. And he is going to use the next chapters to crush Jonah. To make him become a willing and happy soul winner. So let's walk this. Now this is where you hold on to your seats and we go fast, okay? He's in this boat. Storm hits, verse 4. The sailors get really nervous, verse 5. Jonah, in verse 5, is sleeping. It says, Jonah had gone below in the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. Sin can really put you to sleep. He's insensitive. The captain gets all angry in verse 6. And he finds Jonah and says, hey, Jonah, get up and pray to your God. We're about to die. Amazing. He's reprimanded by a pagan. The sailor's solution, hey, they cast lots. It's a pagan practice. And guess what? God even uses the casting of lots to nail Jonah. Jonah, you're the man. You're the problem. So they begin to question him in verse 8, and Jonah answers in verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord of God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah said, you know what? I am fleeing from God. They're going, Jonah, how could you do this? He's getting reprimanded by pagans over his own God. I mean, this is like funny. So they don't know what to do. So Jonah says the solution, simple solution, kill me. Verse 12. He said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea. But they get scared. They keep trying to not do that. But finally, they throw him in. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and look what happens. He hits that water, boom, and the water stops. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Those sailors are going, whoa. Verse 16. The men feared the Lord greatly. They're going, whoa, this Jonah God is amazing. Now, verse 17 is a mind blower. They're looking all over the ship. Jonah's in the water. Just stop. Perfectly clear. Suddenly, this huge thing pulls out from the water. It's this huge fish. And opens his mouth. And they're looking going, oh my goodness. And suddenly this fish comes and 
swallows Jonah and goes right back into the water. And those men are just blown away. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Remember what Jesus said? This is a true story. Historically true. Probably a karsharadon, a massively huge shark. They grow up 65 feet in length. But even if it wasn't, you know, God appointed this fish. Maybe he just made this fish for this. Now, you know what happens? Well, first of all, what was it like in there? First of all, let's think about this. The smell. Ugh. Digested fish smell. What do you taste? You know when you go swimming in the water, you always taste the salt water? Imagine tasting the inner liquids of a big fish in the Mediterranean. Ugh. What could he feel? Well, it says, verse 5, weeds around his head, sliminess. Maybe the barometric pressure going up and down. Verse 6a, he says he feels going down and up. He's fainting away. What did he see? Nothing. Black. And what could he hear? Well, if it was a whale, I don't think it was, but maybe whale sounds like... I don't know if that's... I'm not good at whale sounds, but could he hear that sound? Or was he just hearing water slushing around? I don't know. But I mean, folks, could you just imagine the fear? I mean, three days of this. You know what happens when you're in the stomach of a fish for three days? Alive. You start praying. That's what he does. And Jonah, verse 1 of chapter 2, prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he describes it in verse 8, he repents. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to the Lord with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. I think here Jonah repents. He says, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm willing. Boy, you know, God sometimes, you see, this is the point. He's molding the soul winner. He's crushing Jonah until the point of, okay, Lord, whatever. You know, this happened to me. I mean, I've been over there for 25 years. The first 10 years we were in Paris. And uh, about four years into it, I mean, I, I had a real attitude problem toward the French. I mean, I, I was born in Paris. My kids are French. So there's part of me that loves the French, but started me, just, just, I, I just couldn't take it. And it all came to a head when our apartment, we lived in a huge building in the outskirts of Paris and like on the seventh floor. And uh, I, I, I think I almost went mad. Upstairs we had dogs barking. You know, barking dogs, like a lot. <laughs> then below, we have drills. Dogs and drills. I mean, it just resonates through the whole building. Then there was this kid who was learning to play the saxophone. He played all day. He only knew one song, Oh, When the Saints. So, and then, no joke, below, these Arab people move in and they love Arab music. Folks, I called the cops to come and deal with it. It drove me crazy. And I remember thinking, I hate this, I hate this, until the point God just crushed me. And I had to come to the point where I was saying, Lord, whatever. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about them. And God just had to make me a willing soul winner. And he used those strange circumstances to crush me. Well, number six. Soul winning is always successful. You know what happens? That's amazing. Jonah, verse 10, chapter 2, commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. Take two. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, verse, chapter 3, verse 1, a second time saying, Arise and go to the Nineveh of the great city and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. 
Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Look at verse 5. It's incredible. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Folks, the entire city repents. Verse 6, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself. He repents too. It's amazing. The city repents, the king repents. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 41, they really repented. He uses those words. And God spares the city. And that makes Jonah an incredibly successful soul winner. I mean, I would love to see all of Geneva come to Christ. Hasn't happened. But John, you said that soul winning is always successful. That was the point of your point. It's not true. There's a lot of times when we try and witness to someone and they don't come to Christ. You're right. You're absolutely right. Listen to this. If you've heard nothing, listen to this. This is very interesting. Go with me to Matthew 11. I want to show you something amazing. Matthew 11. I don't know if you remember this, but in Matthew 4.13, Jesus, after he's baptized, goes and moves to Capernaum. And he lives there. It's right on the Sea of Galilee for three years. Okay? Three years. He does miracles, preaches most of his sermons there. Huge. Look what happens in Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Verse 23. Folks, he spent three years in Capernaum. He says this, And you, Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You know you shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, you heard my sermons, you saw my miracles, you rejected me, you are being condemned to hell. What's amazing to me is that Jesus spent, I mean, Jonah spent three days in Nineveh and 600,000 people repented. Jesus, the Son of God, spent three years in Capernaum and condemned the city to hell. Was Jesus successful? Isn't that a good question? Oh, you bet he was. You bet he was. He was the Son of God. You see, this is the principle successful evangelism is not the fruit of evangelism. That's our desired result. Successful evangelism is proclaiming the truth, putting the truth before people and letting them have to deal with that truth. Either they reject Christ or they accept Christ. That is between them and God. Only God can pray open a heart for them to believe. But if I have faithfully done the task of putting them before the truth, I had become successful. Folks, that is critical. If a church supports, and if they don't understand that kind of success, and if they're result-based, then it's crazy to support a missionary to France or Switzerland or to an Arab country because there's just no return on the investment. I mean, it takes too long. People don't come to Christ a lot. So the question is, are we training people to faithfully proclaim the truth? Ah, I think that's so exciting. It's not on me. It doesn't matter if there's fruit or not. I mean, sure, it matters, but it's not my problem. It just takes the burden off of me. So, soul winning starts with God. Soul winning is accomplished by through men. Soul winning involves a radical message. Soul winning is counter nature. Soul winning molds the soul winner. Soul winning is always successful. And we end with a soul winning requires love. The last part of the story, you remember? Jonah's still got an attitude problem. Whole city repents, but he still kind of hopes that God will judge them. God says, you don't get it, Jonah. Takes him up. Remember, he builds a little shade thing waiting for the judgment of God. God points this plant that gives him air conditioning. And then a worm kills the plant. Jonah gets really mad. He's kind of manic depressive type of guy. Gets really mad, he wants to die. And God says to him, Jonah, listen, you are more concerned about your comfort, about you, than about the eternal souls of 600,000 people. And I think that's a question we have to ask ourselves. Are we more concerned about us and our comforts 
or about the souls of people under the judgment of God. Last week I had an amazing lunch with a Swiss congressman. He had about an hour and a half lunch. And I knew I was coming to Colonial to preach on evangelism, but I, I better, better witness to this guy. So I was praying, Lord, please. Anyway, he asked me the right question. I shared my testimony, shared John 3.16, explained to him very briefly the gospel, what perishing means, what eternal life means, who Christ was. He got really nervous when I talked about his sin, but he had a smile of approval. Then he came over for coffee to our home. He never received Christ, but I was so excited. Why? Because what you don't know is that I met him 10 years ago when I became the chaplain of the hockey team. I met him through a, did a funeral. He came, he just couldn't understand what I was saying, so he thanked me for my sermon, asked me how I preached that way. And we began to talk, meet at hockey games and all this, and finally I invited him to our concert last Christmas. He loved it. And he thanked me by this lunch. And I was sitting with him thinking, John, this is the result of 10 years of waiting. And I was able to share the gospel with him. After 10 years. And I was thinking, how cool is that? I don't know if God's going to save him, but that's between him and God. I feel that I've done my job and duty toward that man as a soul winner. So my question to you is, how's God working in your heart on this whole area? You're going, I'm not good at this. Jonah wasn't either. I think you've got an evangelism ministry here. Maybe the first thing you need to do is to take a course. Lord, thank you so much for the gospel, for your son, Thank you for your love and compassion on very sinful people that we are. Lord, thank you that you even saved us and you even want to use us. Lord, I just pray you would stir us to be faithful soul winners. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.